0: Fourth week, final week. Next week, we're going to start a new series. Um, I can't remember the name of uh Good Choices. Oh, uh, boy, i drawing a blank now. Um, let me recap very, very, very quickly. The first week, we looked at bearing burdens. Um, in striving to achieve and to get ahead of everything and to accumulate, um, we bear burdens that were not meant for us, that weren't, we weren't meant to bear, um, and we quickly lose hope. But when we bear his yoke of love, like the burden is so light that we can actually carry the burdens of our neighbors too. It's just this crazy thing, kind of kind of ironic. Um, and in week two, to condemn or condone. Um, like Jesus, we don't need to condemn or condone. Because by the Spirit, God gifts us a new tomorrow. And he, he gifts the people around us a new tomorrow. So that they're free from the shame of their past. So they're not condemned, but they're also free from their past that has enslaved them. So you know, condoning is kind of pointless if they're going to remain slaves. <laughs> and, and that's hope. And then, and then two weeks ago, inspiring hope. People need to see to believe. And when we risk using our God-given talents and abilities and skill sets like David did, miracles happen. Amazing things happen. And, and a note, kind of a note to self, your stuff, what you bring to the table doesn't have to be miraculous. So you, but when you give it to God, it becomes miraculous. You, you just got to bring what you got whatever he's given you. Um, This week, today, the final installment of our Back to Church series, we're going to ask kind of a tough question, make some people uncomfortable maybe. What would lead somebody to trust that hope resided here at the Richland Church of the Nazarene? Just kind of want to let that settle in for just a moment. The people of Richland, the Tri Cities. What would lead them to believe? What, what actions have we taken? Inactions have we taken? Words spoken, words not spoken. What have we done to convince them that hope resides here? That they could trust and they could tell their friend, "Yeah, go to the Richland Church of the Nazarene because that's where hope lives." I, I know because I've been there and I've experienced it. I, I mean, just honestly, don't, don't. Again, this isn't a finger-pointing. This isn't a condemnation-type message. Nothing like that at all. I'm not indicting anybody. Um, it's just a question I think we need to wrestle with all the time. We need to ponder this question. Um, this hope reside here. We're living in a day and age, and you guys recognize this. I don't need to beat this one too much. Trust and confidence in the institutions of our society are... I don't know if they're at an all-time low, because I'm not old enough to recognize that, but they're, they're pretty doggone low, right? Education system, politics, economics, social system, they're, they're all right? All, all of this stuff, we, we've just kind of lost confidence. We don't trust them anymore. Even as they yell louder and louder, trust us, right? We know what's best for you. And we think, no, you don't. <laughs> you don't either. So the question this morning, what does the church have to offer to the modern skeptic? And it's not even a skeptic anymore. I was talking with Diane. We were watching the news or something. It's like skeptics have now become deniers, right? Flat out denying it. Don't talk to me. Don't talk to me. Denying everything because trust has been so abused by the institution. And this, again, this is a big deal for the church because we claim to know the truth. We claim to follow the truth, right? We claim to know personally the truth. So if people don't trust us, this is a big deal. This is a huge, huge deal for us. So this morning I want to convince you that Jesus Christ, through the local church, which is, which is you guys, his body, this place is where hope is found. The local church, through Jesus Christ, is the hope of the world. But we need to do a better job dealing with our doubts. And we need to do a better job dealing with the doubts of people who aren't in here right now. Um, the problem, again, is not the doubt itself, but rather how we handle our doubts. Because we all have doubts, right? People doubt about all sorts of things for all sorts of reasons. But mishandled and unaddressed doubts, skepticisms, they lead to a lack of hope. And we can't be the place that loses hope, right? We can't be the place where somebody comes and say, Oh, we've run out of hope, sorry, <laughs> we're dry. We can't be that place. So I did a little bit of digging around. Do a little, tiny little bit of research, discover some basics about doubt and skepticism, just to kind of set us up for what I want to go to this morning. Um, people start with doubts unanswered, right? That's kind of the starting line. That's where the trouble begins, uh, unaddressed doubts. And this is where confidence and trust begins to suffer and erode. And, and the question becomes, can I trust them? Where before there was no question, I trust you. I trust you. And now it's not, it's not, it's not cynical yet. It's just, can I trust you? <laughs> For the first time a question enters your mind can i trust this institution and then it moves to a what i would call a healthy skepticism and i call it healthy because when we're skeptical we tend to be prudent we we tend to step back and okay slow down stop racing let's let's think about this and this is a good thing this is a good thing to be prudent um this is the person who says well Maybe I shouldn't be trusting them with everything. They're not bad. They're not, you know, they haven't. But maybe I shouldn't trust them with everything. And then it quickly moves to an unhealthy skepticism. This is when cynicism moves into town. And pretty soon we, we're at a point where we're just saying, I don't think I can trust them anymore at all. I, I, I just don't think. And then, and then we become passive. We become apathetic. Like, I, I don't want to trust them. I'm tired of trusting them. They've burned bridges too many times, and I'm just, I'm just tired of trusting them. And then they finally end at the bottom, right, where honest doubters become blind deniers, right? If their lips are moving, they're lying. I don't care what they're saying. If their lips are moving, they're lying. They're going to have to earn back my trust because their words have been empty. I read an article by a guy named Dr. Paul Twist. He's at the Master Seminary. It's like earlier this summer, and it, it took me forever to find it. But here it is, he, he, he quotes Oswald Byer and says, um, without trust there is no human life. And this is what he writes, I'm gonna just quote from here. It says, trust is one of the most fundamental components of everyday life. In our familial relationships, friendships, formal interactions, we continually exercise trust as the means by which we flourish. However, the events of 2020 and 2021 have shown that we have a problem. Societal relationships are not functioning as they should. People are reluctant to trust one another, and we doubt the validity of every interpretation. Does that that sound familiar, right? That's got to sound familiar because, I mean, that's all I'm hearing. That's all I'm hearing right now. And again, a huge, huge issue for the church, and we're already seeing it play out, right? The present lack of trust in society is rapidly becoming a distrust in us, in the church, in followers of Jesus Christ, the world has been burned often enough by Christians who said that they loved them. And when push came to shove, they found out maybe not. Maybe not. So Dr. Twist suggests two questions that, that need to be addressed if, if we, the church, is going to get a leg up on this issue. right? This distrust that the world has with us. He says, the first question is, how exactly has society arrived at such levels of distrust? This is what we need to answer, and I'm going to try to answer that this morning. And the second question I'm going to try to answer, too. How does God instruct us to relate to one another, exercising trust correctly in order to flourish? Right? What, what are his instructions? What are the trust instructions in the Bible? Now, community believers, you know, what that first one, communities of believers who don't take one another at their word, um, church members refusing to participate. I'm not, I, again, not pointing fingers, I'm saying the church, big C, the church. Um, refusing to follow church leadership because I don't trust them. Man, I mean, I get it. it. It happens. We see it in the news all over the place. It's basically a refusal to trust or follow anyone outside oneself. That's kind of where we've arrived. We, we've been so burned by so many different people and institutions. We're just kind of at a point. I'll only trust myself. I don't trust a doctor, I won't trust my fam. I won't trust anybody but myself and my knowledge. All of which does horrible damage to the body of the Christ, us, right, and the gospel. So Dr. Twist suggests at least two these two crucial questions. And amazingly, the answers to these two questions are the two sides of the same coin, right? What we're going to find is the refusal to follow God's instructions in number two is going to lead to how society arrived at our place where we're sitting now in question number one. Imagine that. So in spending time with Thomas this week, Doubting Thomas, right? It's a message about doubt, right? Got doubt. It's like, well, let's go to Doubting Thomas. And so I spent some time with Doubting Thomas this morning and, and this, this week, and it, and it dawned on me this week that that article that I had read this past summer, like, like Doubting Thomas, the incident of Doubting Thomas in chapter 20 of John has Dr. Twist's research all over it. And, and for the very first time, Me Anyway, I was able to see some really interpersonal dynamics that we see at work here in our world today. And so I kind of want to I'm going to look at Doubting Thomas and then I'm going to kind of overlay Dr. Twist's research over the top and and just just I pray that you'll notice some interpersonal dynamics that maybe you haven't noticed before in this story. So um, let me see. Dr. Twist, he starts out by recognizing what we already know. Um, Interpersonal relationships are central to the notion of trust. Hit that next slide there. If I'm to trust you and you're to trust me, we need to know each other, right? If we don't know each other, trust has nothing to build on, nothing to build on. Whether the interaction is fleeting or longstanding, trust is what makes human engagement possible. We trust each other. Right when I say I'm going to meet you at a certain time, or I'm going to pay you, or I'm going to produce a service, or I'm whatever, there, there's a certain amount of trust, right? I know we've moved into a contractual kind of society, but we still trust is a is a pretty big pretty big issue. Um, and what Doctor Twist suggests is that in turn, successful relationships depend on several levels of mutuality. Right? Several levels of mutuality, a willingness to share and reciprocate certain things right? that build trust and diminish doubt and distrust. At least, at least three. I want to share three of his, the, the, these ideas of his, these three mutualities that have been in steady decline in recent years and have produced incredibly low levels of trust. Again, there are other factors that play in, but these are probably the primary factors that we need to really, really pay attention to. Because as they've gone down trust in society has gone down with them the first of these is what twist calls the mutuality of presence and this one kind of makes sense right if trust is to be established both parties got to show up right if one party continually shows up late or doesn't show up you don't trust them you start showing up later you decide I don't need to show up because they're probably not going to show up you both got to show up right for something to happen to love for love to happen At a societal level, this simple requirement has suffered from the rise of individualism. An increasingly self-centered worldview means that people feel less and less obligated to participate in the institutions of society. I don't want to participate. I don't want them shaping me. I don't want them influencing me. I just want me and my own. Right? That's that's all I want. And added to all this is the ability that we now have to exist almost exclusively online. We've gotten to the point where meaningful interactions. The number of... They're going down. They're going down. And we're getting sick. We're getting ill. Our souls are suffering because we don't have interaction anymore. We don't have... We're not in the presence, each other's presence anymore. We're skeptical simply because we're not present. A second closely related mutuality is that of discourse. Through trust... Excuse me, though trust can be derived purely from watching somebody. Yeah, well, that person looks trustworthy. More often than not, trust is developed through verbal exchange. As I talk to you and I get to know you and the years go by, my wife and I, we we can repeat each other's sentences. We have talked together so much. That sounds horrible. But it's true. I, I, can, I, can, I can read her thoughts and she can read mine because we have had so much discourse and presence in each other's lives, so our trust is super, super high. Our distrust is really, really low. Right? We know that when somebody speaks, they're speaking the truth to each other. Right? We know that about each other. As two parties discuss an issue, the level of trust develops, whereby each person believes that the other person is being accurately and truthful in their representation of their view. And a huge, huge impediment to this has been the rise of what's called new tolerance, right? This idea that, that whatever you say cannot, cannot insult anybody, cannot put, not, not put anybody, but can't offend anybody to the point where we no longer speak the truth to each other. We say to each other what we expect the other person wants to hear. That doesn't build trust. At a certain point, I'm going to be thinking, are, are you just being nice to me, or do you really agree with me? I think you're not being honest with me. You ever done that? You ever been dishonest with somebody else? I don't want to insult them, so I'm going to kind of agree with them, even though they're nuts. Right? You just, uh, that's not honest. And it, and it actually builds distrust. If we can't figure out a way to be honest in love, in love. I see a lot of people be honest without love, and it's, it's really ugly, and I don't think that's what we're driving at here. Okay. Third, third mutuality is that influence. Recognizing that every interpersonal relationship involves some degree of entrusting yourself to one another, to somebody else. Success becomes dependent upon your willingness to submit. Does that make sense? You have to be willing. Will, will I allow this person or this institution or this organization to shape me? Will I allow it to influence me? Or do I need to keep it at arm's length because I'm not real thrilled about the way they might influence me? Again, the result. At all levels of society, folks seek less and less to be to submit and to be influenced. Right? It's circle the wagons. Have you noticed that in our our society, in our world, it's a mass amount of circling the wagons, us against them, big, big, big deal? Again, the result is just an incredibly autonomous society composed of individuals who are afraid of being vulnerable. They're just afraid to be vulnerable. So now let's bring in Doubting Thomas into the discussion. Essentially, Thomas makes one big mistake, just, just one big mistake, but he follows it up with two really, really solid, solid moves. And, and this mistake and these two solid moves that he makes, um, Dr. Twist's work, just, it, just, it makes it explode. It, just, it makes it all come to life. All right, so let's start with chapter 20 of John. This is the story of Doubting Thomas. Chapter twenty-four. It starts now. Thomas, also known as Didymus, the twin, um, one of the twelve, was not with the disciples when Jesus came. Now understand something. Thomas never lacked courage. If you go back to John, uh, let's see, chapter eleven of John, right? Jesus is going to go to Bethany, and then all the disciples are like, no, no, no. Also, were all the leaders of the church. They're going to kill you. And Thomas is like, let's go. I am ready to go and die with you. Like Thomas is not a coward. So whatever whatever you're thinking, don't 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 go down that road. He's not a coward. This guy. He's a committed, he's very, 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 very committed, right? But the one big mistake that Thomas makes is withdrawing from fellowship because he wasn't there with his fellow followers of Jesus, I guess you call him at that point, he missed seeing Jesus, he missed out. We miss a lot when we separate ourselves from the body, regular fellowship, right? Things can happen to us within the church, within this, this space here that, that simply cannot happen when you're at home, it, it can't. Right? You say, well, I'm out in wilderness and I'm, I'm, I'm worshiping God. Well, you know, that's good and fine, but there are things in here that happen within the body, within his body that you're refusing when you refuse fellowship. And again, when something bad happens, we, we tend to shut ourselves off. We don't want to see people. <laughs> but the weird thing about it is, is if we give in and, and give ourselves to people and allow them to be a part of our healing We find healing and the fact of the matter is that's when we actually come face-to-face with Christ So don't hide in our caves, right? Guys, I I, I know we like going into our caves stay out of the caves (laughs) Nothing good happens in the cave right stay out of the cave Basically Thomas refused the mutuality of presence in verse 24 By withdrawing and refusing the mutuality of presence, he enters the self-fulfilling prophecy of self-doubt, right? He believes, he's beginning to think, he's doubting, and with nobody else to interact, with no other discourse, presence of nobody else, right, allowing nobody else to influence his thinking, his thoughts, what, they don't spiral up, they spiral down. They spiral down, and it just gets uglier and uglier, and he loses hope, and he loses hope, Why? To protect himself. He's only protecting himself. Like, Thomas comes to this place of skepticism and doubt very honestly, right? He's been watching his mentor for three years, loved his mentor, loved following Jesus Christ, and now he's been crucified. He's dead. He's he's gone. And Thomas is thinking, wait a minute, these rumors of a resurrection, that is so logically, right? You know what? Just stop talking to me. Just stop talking. I don't want to talk to you all anymore. This, This is where Thomas is. Right, He's gone from a healthy skepticism right on down to denial. They're like, don't, don't bother me with the facts. I don't want to hear it. This has all been a lie. Jesus said we could trust him. He's dead now. So when Jesus shows up, Thomas isn't around to receive a blessing. There's so many Christians that do the same thing. For whatever reason, they're at home. And they'll never know the blessing that they missed. Because it happens here when spirit-filled people gather together. It makes the spirit so powerful when we gather together. So continuing in verse 25, So the other disciples told them, We've seen the Lord. Verse 25, But he said to them, Unless I see the nail marks in his hands, and I put my finger where his nails were, where the nails were, and I put my hand into his side, I will not believe Right? Thomas has refused to even discuss the matter. Truthfully, we're all a little bit like Thomas, right? The doubt that we often express is really a way of keeping ourselves from getting our hopes too high, right? That things in our life can improve, that God is good, that he can heal us. And so we, we, don't, we don't lean into that all because we're afraid, oh, I don't know if I can trust God to do that, to care enough about me, to love me enough to do this for me. We often don't want to believe and we don't want to hope because we're afraid that God's not going to come through. In effect, Thomas has refused the mutuality of discourse. I don't believe what you say, so let's just stop talking about it. At this point, I have to see it to believe it. I got to see it to believe it. Ever met somebody like that? <laughs> Again, I refuse to let the facts get in the way. And by refusing to even discuss the matter, he refuses to. The mutuality of influence I do not trust you enough to influence my thinking so don't don't mess up my thinking in the course of one day Thomas has jumped from what might have been a healthy skepticism right I wonder if I can trust them to flat-out denial right if their lips are moving they're lying and to protect himself from any further relational pain he refuses to allow or permit the rest of the disciples to have any further shaping Or influence on him now I'm not sure at what point he changed his mind but apparently he does or why he changed his mind maybe it was all the mutualities of presence and discourse and influence over the past two or three years with the disciples affected him maybe trust wasn't dead Regardless, one week after refusing his presence and his discourse and his influence, we read this, verse 26. A week later, his disciples were in the house again, and Thomas was with them. Though the doors were locked, Jesus came and stood among them and said, Peace be with you. And whom does he speak to first? Right? The one who refused to believe. Thomas, right? The doubter. Verse 27. Then he said to Thomas, Put your finger here. See my hands. Reach out your hand and put it into my side. Now stop doubting and believe now notice how jesus addresses thomas he doesn't belittle him he doesn't reprimand him for his doubt, right he doesn't ridicule him for needing proof ah he actually invites thomas to see for himself i got to thinking about this and this is a tough question do we have any right or cause and i'm going to say this for the big c church and I'm going to say this for us, and again, it's not a finger-pointing, it's a question we all need to wrestle with, right, every single one of us. Do we have any right or cause to respond to the doubts of a non-believing community as Jesus did? Can we say this to the Tri-Cities? Just think about it a moment. Have we visibly suffered for the sake of the lost, in written, to the point... Where we can honestly say, stop doubting and believe. We've bled for you. We have suffered for you. Stop da-. Have we arrived at that point? It's, it's just a question. And I'm sure some of us individually, some of us group-wise, we are doing that. But as a whole body, I, I I'm just, just challenge us. All. We, we all need to be leaning into this. Are we willing to suffer for this community? Because this community does not trust. And it's not just because of us, it, it's our society. It's not like bagging on the Christians again. And after putting his finger in Jesus' side, we witness the one, the first, of the really two really good moves that Thomas makes after refusing fellowship, right? First one, his belief, it wasn't a shallow or a false belief, right? He absolutely refused to say that he understood what he did not understand or to believe what he did not believe. There's just this uncompromising honesty about him, right? He would still, he would never, ever quiet his doubts by pretending that they didn't exist, right? He wasn't the kind of man who would rattle off a creed without understanding what it was all about. Thomas had to be sure. And that's not a bad thing, unless it's unattended to, unless people ignore it, because then it goes in the wrong direction. There's more ultimate faith in a person who insists on being sure than there is in one who just glibly, yeah, sure, that sounds good, because when times get tough, whatever was picked up easily is usually laid down easily. I don't know if you've noticed that. If you didn't think about it, tough times come, Don't even got to think about it. Didn't even recognize it when I had it. The second great move by Thomas. After Jesus shows him his hands and his sides, verse 28, Thomas said, My Lord and my God, right? His other great virtue was that when he was sure, he was sure, right? He went all the way. Again, similar to Thomas when he was the only one willing to go to Bethany and die for Jesus. Same situation here, right? Once committed, he committed entirely. He wasn't just airing his doubts, right? This wasn't mental calisthenics for Thomas. You ever run into somebody like that? You're kind of in the back of your mind thinking, you know what? I don't think they want to believe. I just think they want to argue. <laughs> I, I don't know. Anybody run into people like that? He doubted in order to be sure. Of, he, he doubted in order to become sure. And when he did, his surrender was complete. And then this, we read this in verse 29. Then Jesus said to him, "Because you have seen me, you have, you have believed." Blessed are those who have not seen and yet have believed. Now, traditionally, we tend to focus on the second half of that statement, right? As if somehow the first half is wrong, and the second half is somehow, or the first half is, yeah, is wrong, and the second half is somehow correct. Like the first half is not the right way, and and, and only if you don't see it. That's the way it's got to be. And listen, folks, this isn't an either-or kind of thing. This is a a both-and. This is a both-and Right? All Jesus is saying is he's not going to be here for a very short amount of time. He's going to be gone. He's going to be at the right hand of the Father. right? And unless people are able to see by faith what Thomas and the rest of the disciples were insanely blessed to be able to see, unless people can see with faith because Jesus is then going to be gone, they will never again see what Thomas saw. So again, Jesus isn't bagging on people who, who need proof Right, he, he gave Thomas proof. He was very open about giving Thomas proofs. Not a problem at all. We need to be that way too. We need to be very open. Hey, man, we will prove it. Allow, allow us to prove it. Challenge us to prove our love for you. Got me thinking about the loss of Tri-Cities in Richland. Kind of as a closing application, kind of a closing exercise, I want to look... Very quickly at this instance once more, but this time I want you to I want you to read it and and instead of hearing doubting Thomas, I want you to hear in your mind and see in your mind's eye doubting Richland or, or doubting Tri Cities area. Right, kind of replace Thomas in your mind because Thomas is people out there. If you understand Thomas, then you understand the folks out there. You understand exactly why they're not sitting in here right now. The one big mistake that Thomas made is he withdrew from fellowship. The world has also withdrawn from fellowship. They've graded us, and they've found us wanting. That's why they don't crowd to get in here. I just wonder how many Doubting Thomases have reached out to a Christian, again, not here, just church big C, how many Doubting Thomases have reached out to a church or a Christian and only to be told by spoken words and unspoken words or by actions or by inactions. You don't belong here. Your issues, your lifestyle choices, your stuff, doesn't belong here. This isn't the place for you. The question for us is, do the lost, when they come to this place, do they find hope no matter what? Or is it kind of a graded hope, kind of a graduated hope, kind of an arm's length kind of hope? And number two, when folks decide not to come to church, we cease to be incarnational in their lives. That's just a simple fact. I know it was their choice but that doesn't relieve us of our responsibility in order for us to remain an incarnational ministry if they're not here guess what we got to go there that's the only way any kind of mutuality of presence or discourse or influence is going to happen at this point they're not here we got to go there we got to be in their neighborhoods in their parks and in their institutions in their lives right we're living like this private little sweet little life Funny thing, God left his sweet little life in heaven. Jesus came down and incarnationally moved into the neighborhood. And have we, as the Church of the Nazarene, have we moved into the neighborhood? Again, just a question we all need to be pondering. But here's where we're going to have to be. Really, really careful because here's what we're up against if we leave the building in order to be incarnational. Theirs isn't going to be a shallower false belief, right? They're going to need to see proof. Too many people, too many institutions have lied to them, and they're at an extremely unhealthy level of skepticism right now. They are cynical, which makes them apathetic to our message. It's like Douglas was saying, right? They're They're defensive. They're defensive. Many folks don't just doubt the church or God. They they flat out deny both, or at least the goodness of both. And who can blame them, right? It's just easier than getting hurt again. I'm just going to stay home. I'm tired of churches promising everything and and nothing, nothing. They, They don't even say hi to me. Nothing happens. Here's the good part of it. Once committed, they will commit entirely. If we can show them that the love of Christ is real... Man, they've been waiting for it. They've been looking for it. They've been praying for it. They want it. They, they do. But like Douglas found out, they're going to be a little defensive at first because their distrust is kind of right up in there. Their cynicism and skepticism is just kind of right up there. But we have to be, we've got to have the patience of God just constantly, quietly loving, loving them. In Acts 2, verses 42 and 47, the entire early church set out to mimic Jesus, right? They decided to suffer for their neighbors, sharing material goods and resources when needed, and here are the results. This is Acts 2, verse 46. Every day they continued to meet together in the temple courts. They broke bread in their homes, and they ate together with glad and sincere hearts, praising God and enjoying the favor of all the people. And the Lord added to their numbers daily those who were being saved. And I get the distinct impression that God wants us to demonstrate our love, love and the father's love for this community by willing by being willing to suffer for them again this is no different than what god's already done for us in jesus and so the answers to our two questions got doubt when we refuse the presence when we refuse discourse when we refuse to be influenced by the body everybody suffers we end up where society is right now. Nobody trusts anybody. Hope should always reside here. Of all the places on the earth, this should be the place. And it's not so much because of the places, because of the Holy Spirit-filled people that fill this place each week. This should be the weekly place of hope, folks. You bow your heads. Father, thank you so much for, for Thomas and for allowing us through Thomas to see into the hearts and minds of people who are either cynical or just maybe just hesitant. Maybe they're all the way to denial. The only way, that Father, that this is going to change is if we prove to them your love. And that's on us. You've already done your part. You've proven your love, Father. But now we've got to repeat it. We're supposed to be doing what your son did. We are called to suffer and die to ourselves for this community who's rapidly losing hope. Rapidly losing trust that anybody cares. So, Father, Richland Church of Nazarene, I pray that this would be that place of hope, that that people in this city, when they talk to their friends, yeah, go to that place. That's the place to find hope. Those people will wrap their loving arms around you, and they won't let go. Father, that we would be that place. And in places where we are already that place, Father, would it flower and grow and infect all of us. Father, thank you so much again for doubting Thomas, because there's so much of him in all of us, all of us. Thank you for your patience, Father, and for your unending love, as shown by your son, Jesus. In his name we pray. Amen.